The analogy to me is like we're like a you know an aggressive on like an Enron type entrepreneur who's like buying up all this new stuff and then like hoping the bank doesn't call us, you know. And I think with especially with China, it looks to me very worryingly like they are going to call our bets, and I I, I fear we're not ready. Welcome back to the Kevin Roberts Show. You know, each week we have a policy leader, some luminary. They tend to be right of center. We cover all of the issues a couple of times in the several months that I've been doing this show. We've covered foreign policy. It is so much in the news. Obviously, it's always relevant to us, the United States, because we are the world's peacekeeper. But I thought this week, given the timeliness of what we're doing in China or not doing in China, that we would have, I think, one of the leading visionaries for American foreign policy on the right, Bridge Colby. Bridge, my friend, you're one of my newer friends, but certainly so, and a friend of the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for being here. It's really a pleasure, Kevin, and I feel the same way. It's an honor to be with you. Well, thanks. We're going to cover the whole world, actually, in, in the time that we have together. And so we will have to move quickly. But the, the first topic, which we'll get to momentarily, of course, is the Far East, in particular, the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. Having said that, I try to ask each of my guests sort of what their professional story is. That is, how they got to, to be the leader they are in their respective area of expertise. In your case, you're co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative. You travel the world. We'll talk about a recent trip you took to Japan. But how is it that you've gotten to where you are now, where the Heritage Foundation, so many people around the world listen to your analysis? Well, thank you. You're, you're very kind. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, I've been in the field for roughly the, uh, the last 20 years. When I finished college, I came down. I worked in Washington, uh, first in the State Department, then uh, on the intelligence reform effort. I spent a little bit of time as a civilian in Iraq. Um, then I went to law school. Uh, you know, my career decision making was not always the, the straight line. I thought maybe I'd practice law, but I actually got more into more and more into strategy and defense strategy, geopolitics. And I've kind of followed that along for a while. One of the things I, I guess I would say is, I, you know, I came to Washington. My, my professional vision, you know, my steps along the way wasn't necessarily clear, but I think my my sort of basic view was, and I, and I would describe it as, as realist and I think conservative realist. And I mean, I don't mean that in the kind of academic narrow sense, but I just mean the way I look at the world. And at that time, it was very out of favor. And I think one of the very encouraging things is that, you know, it's it's come more and back into into place, into vogue, if you will. And I, again, I don't want to exaggerate the sort of, you know, particular theoretical aspect of it. But, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do is I've gotten more and more you know, gone along is try to kind of build that out and and try to sort of you know feel the I think there's a Asian expression of you know, feel feel your way across the river by touching the stones. But but I've seen a need for for kind of making these arguments and building out these arguments and an increasing sort of energy and thirst for this stuff. And it, it, because I think people recognize geopolitically at home that the old ways we were doing things just don't fit. You know, whatever you thought 20 years ago, it's clear they don't make sense anymore. And that's what gives me my, you know, kind of wakes me up in the morning when I'm trying to do it at, at the Marathon Initiative. That's good. And, and and tell me if I'm mistaken, but it seems like the, the accurate way to describe your sense of American foreign policy is realism. That is to say, sometimes, it, pardon the just the, the additional caveat there, Sometimes you receive some criticism, as I and Heritage do now, of saying we want America to withdraw from the world. That couldn't be further from the truth. It's just that America's changed, too, and I limit saying this, we're weaker. And therefore, we have to be more realistic about the power we can project around the world. 
Well, look, in a way, I think of conservatism and realism as kind of cognate, like they're, they're pretty similar in my conception. I mean, in the sense that, that I really try to go back and, 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 you know, the world, people are not perfectible, you know, large, you know, grandiose social projects are unlikely to uh, pan out well. You know, you're supposed to look after the people closest to you, family, citizenry, etc. That's sort of the basic idea. It's a tough world. It's a competitive place out there. Uh, there's a lot of dangers. You've got to be realistic about that. And I think, you know, I think, look, we got hubristic. Um, and that was true of the Democrats, but it was also true of the Republicans. I mean, you know, you go back and you look at some of the things, an end to evil. I mean, ending tyranny in the world. I mean, these are things... You know, they might be noble in a certain way, but they're, I think, you know, I've actually got a piece coming out in First Things kind of laying out this sort of moral case from my point of view. I don't think it's moral at the end of the day to do things that are unwise or imprudent. I mean, not to get into the religion too much, but, you know, I was in, in the church the, earlier this month and there's Luke 12 and, and Jesus talking about stewardship. And I think that's the sort of mindset that I bring that this is not only some sort of cold, heartless, you know, uh, playing on a, on a game board. This is actually what's 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 moral and prudent. And I go back to first principles about what is our foreign policy about. Well, I think it's pretty similar to our domestic policy. It's about the American people's physical security, their freedom, and their prosperity, which are of course linked. And that's what I try to build from and to, in a sense, in where I'm laying out my foreign policy. So, as you rightly point out, this could mean heavy engagement abroad. But it might not. And we have to recognize how much power we have and not be delusional about it. And I think there's still a, a great deal of delusion. And I don't think that's good for the American people. Well, there are some recent examples of the problems of the, the old way of thinking still driving decisions in this town, especially in Congress. And we'll touch on them. I'm thinking in particular about the Ukraine aid package on which we agree, but of mm -hmm. course the, the, the right is fairly fractured about that. We'll cover that in depth, but you and I, and, and certainly my heritage, my colleagues in heritage believe the gravest threat, an existential threat to the United States, to our ideals is the, the Chinese Communist Party. And so that's where we're going to start. That really does, you know, once you get past the context that you just laid out in terms of specific powers, that's the one that ought to define where we're divvying up the rest of our, our resources, right? And so tell us, again, with your, your realism, what the threat is from the CCP and how you think America up to this point has done in confronting it. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And if you just look out the world in a kind of, I would say, sort of cold-eyed, clear-eyed you know, perspective, but again, that's that perspective of stewardship. You have to look at things you know, correctly and make your appropriate investments and, and allocations and preparations. China is by far the greatest challenge to our interests, not only today, but in some respects ever. I mean, since the emergence of the United States as a kind of international power, you could kind of say sometime in the 19th century, China is by far the strongest state. I mean, we became the world's largest economy in the late 19th century, and we've never not held that position since then. Well, uh, China has that position, or to, by some metrics, or soon will. I mean, just to give you a sense, the American economy probably alone was larger than Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and Fascist Italy, let alone with the British Empire and the USSR. Now, is, is Xi Jinping worse than Adolf Hitler? I think that's a high, a high bar or a low bar to exceed, but he's not a, he's not a nice guy, and uh, to say to say the least. And so that's that's the thing. And I think what we and where this is, I think, particularly relevant on the right of center these days is. You know, why does that matter to us? And look, I really sympathize with the people who are very skeptical of, of overseas intervention. I mean, as we've discussed, I was against the Iraq war. I mean, not publicly, but just, you know, as a young guy in the government system, 
I was against the nation-building project in Afghanistan. I was against intervening in Syria. I generally am very disinclined to use the American military for, you know, for forceful action. But here's the thing. China has enormous goals, and its first, I think, big goal is to dominate Asia. And here's the, here are the facts, too. Asia is going to be upwards of 50% of global GDP. And he who dominates over 50% of global GDP is going to dominate our economy right, and thus our society. So there's this idea that we could just pull back and have autarky at home, and all, and, but th that's just not how it's gonna work. Because I mean, go back to that realism, go back to that conservative insight that, that people are not angels. Well, if they've got over 50% of global GDP, what are they gonna do with it? And we don't have to speculate, because they're already behaving that way. You know, look at things like TikTok and look how they behave at home. So this is by far the most profound danger that we face, and I just don't see the urgency in our system at all, and that really makes me frankly, furious. No, it is. It is infuriating. And and we have recent news of Speaker Pelosi going to Taiwan, which really did highlight, I, I think, the deficiencies of the American mindset toward defending Taiwan. Not that it's 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 altogether awful. And, and frankly, both Republicans and mm -hmm. Democrats deserve sure. some credit for being a little more vocal about what to do with Taiwan. But I think you and I agree that we have to be doing more. What specifically, though, would that look like? Well, look, I think right now, frankly, that we're uh, speaking loudly and carrying a small stick, you know, which which is we presume. And I, frankly, I mean, if I could be a little unkind, I mean, a lot of the people running our policy and our foreign policy are people of a different generation who, I mean, I'll be a little crude here, but I think a lot of them in their minds think that people in Beijing and Shanghai are still riding around on bicycles. And that ain't true. You know, they're publishing as many AI papers in their academic journals you know, you look at Elon Musk putting that battery uh, plant in Shanghai. That that wasn't, you know, that was because he thought it was profitable. This these are these this country is serious as a heart attack, and sure, it's got problems. But when you're, you know, four times our size and population, you can put up with a lot of problems and still be a huge challenge. You know, the thing about the Pelosi visit to me was, it was kind of a peacocking ex expedition, and it's like, look, we should be speaking softly and carrying a big stick. And then once we got the big stick, we can, we can speak louder. What should we do? I mean, look, we can get into the weeds, but I think there, there should just be this clear overriding urgency in every facet of our government, starting with the executive branch, it's their responsibility, uh, saying, are we where we need to be on Taiwan above all? Because, you know, China presents an economic challenge. Absolutely, it presents a political challenge. But if we get the military balance right, I think we'll be able to negotiate those other sectors from a position of strength. I mean, in a way, I analogize it to like police in a neighborhood. You know, if you've got, you know, if you're in, in New York City after Giuliani and so forth, yeah, you're, you're kind of worried about crime, but you're more worried about commercial development. There are all those other kind of, pro you know, what was Bloomberg going after, you know, sugary sodas and these kinds of things. Yeah, those are your problems. When there's big crime in the city, like there was in the late 80s, that's all that anybody's ever thinking about. And that's the kind of the way I, I, I think about this. And, and this is what I just don't see, Kevin. I see, and, and, and again, I think it's true on the Democrat side, but sadly, it's also true on the Republican side, where people are acting like, hey, we can take on Russia and China and Iran and North Korea. No. Like, and I, that's just factually untrue. We don't have a military that's capable for that. And by the way, Heritage has been pointing out for years that we haven't been spending enough on defense. Well, now we're living in that world. So let's Let's act like I'm not saying that's good, but are we going to deal with reality, you know, for the American people's interests? Or are we going to kind of live in this dream world that we wish might have been? No, I don't think that's doing the American people, you know, what they deserve. Well, and just to hang on that point about the state of the American military, my colleagues here at Heritage, General Tom Spore, chief among them, has been have been really vocal 
about the dilapidated Navy. The Army is not going to reach its recruitment goals this year. The consequences of that, as they relate to our ability to project power across the world, are significant. I mean, that ought to go without saying, but having been in D.C. now for less than a year full-time, I'm just flummoxed that otherwise seemingly smart people, that is elected officials, conservatives, don't understand that. Yeah, there's an interesting like dichotomy. I mean, there is a there is a blob, you know. And with all due respect, I've worked with a lot of senior, you know, general officers and admirals. Um, you know, people can become disconnected. You know, and and I'll say this. I mean, and and I'm you know as as prey to this as anybody else who lives in the Beltway. It's you know, in some ways, Washington is like the imperial capital. That's how our allies treat it. And if you're part of that imperial system whether you're officially so in the State Department or you're part of the think tank circuit, it's pretty, you know, it's it's pretty amazing, you know, that people come and listen to you and think you're so important and they, you know, you're so wise and we need you, America. And that can, I mean, there's a corrupting element to that. I don't mean literally, well, I mean, sort of morally, not financial. Well, there may be financial elements in some cases, but like it's, it's something that it's not actually in the American people's interests, you know, some of it is, some of it is. But I think, you know, what, what Tom Spore is pointing to is exactly right. A number of, you know, people like Jim Banks have been pointing to. I mean, whether it's, you know, the wokeism craziness, more than craziness, terror, terrible uh, terror, uh, whether it's some of the vaccination mandates. I don't know. But there's clearly something going on. I mean, the Afghanistan withdrawal where there's a major decline in recruitment. And that's just one manifestation that's particularly noticeable. I mean, our defense industrial base is really atrophied, which kind of drives me crazy because we're spending a huge three and a half percent of our income, all of us, every year. We should get more bang for our buck. But this is where we are. So, you know, to me, it's like, let's reckon with where we are and do what we need to do and make the best of that rather than kind of pretending like everything's just gravy. I mean, the analogy to me is like, we're like a you know, an aggressive, like an Enron type entrepreneur who's like buying up all this new stuff and then like hoping the bank doesn't call us, you know? And I think with, especially with China, it looks to me very worryingly like they are gonna call our bets. And I I, I fear we're not ready. Yeah, I, I, I do too. I'm glad you mentioned the three and a half percent that Americans are spending as part of our GDP on defense. And that really frames the conversations that you have in your work with administrations around the world. You were recently in Japan having some meetings about that. One of the fascinating things, and I think largely it's it's good news, although you and I would probably hope that it becomes better news in the near term, is is the, the Japanese recognizing that the 21st century is different than the 20th, and that we as America need them as full military partners in confronting China, and also just considering how aligned we are, not just in our interests, but our values, how we go about building our civil society. What did you learn from that trip? And, and in particular, Bridge, I'm curious, are you even cautiously optimistic that Japan will get there in increasing the amount of money they're spending on defense? Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right, Kevin, just kind of frame the overall problem. I think, you know, Look, I think, realistically speaking, given China's size and our own inability to prioritize within the defense budget, I think we probably are going to have to increase defense spending. I say that with some, uh, you know, sort of a lot of reservation because we're already spending a lot, but that's probably the reality. But alongside doing that, where we should see the real growth 
is among our allies' defense program. Because, you know, for you take the instance of Japan spending close to 1%, whereas we spent 35 And by the way, our military exists to defend these countries. Taiwan spending close to 2%. Germany, despite repeated pledges, spending way below 2%. Uh, you know, other countries,、uh, you could, Italy, et cetera. So, this is completely unacceptable. So, our government, and this is the executive branch, but it's also members of Congress and other people who have influence, should be pressing our allies at all available opportunities to meet their responsibilities. And you know what I hear when I go around the world and make this point is people are, the allies are often like, yeah, no, I get it. But I mean, you know, as long as the administration's not going to push us, like, well, you know, it's too hard. And it's like, well, you know, Do people in Iowa or Ohio or Minnesota or Arizona feel threatened by Russia or China less than the people who are actually immediately threatened? Let's step up and meet our, you know, match our rhetoric with reality. So that's kind of my basic message. I think in the case of Japan, look, I think if you look at it from this kind of realist point of view, Japan is our most important ally. It's the third or fourth largest、uh, economy in the world,、um, depending on how you measure it. It's right next to China. The Chinese really have it out for Japan. The thing about Japan is they've had, ever since the Second World War, they've followed something called the Yoshida Doctrine, more or less, which was like,、uh, thanks for that、um, beating us in World War II. We're going to get out of the military business and get into the economic business. And that went really well for them for a long time.、Uh, and, and my point to them is look, it made sense for you. Actually, it's a little known thing, but the Americans have been putting pressure on the Japanese to spend more since the late 40s. MacArthur himself sort of recognized that he'd made a mistake by giving them this pacifist constitution. But they had a good thing going because they, they knew we weren't going to abandon them, and there was very little way that the Soviet Union could, or China could really hurt them during the Cold War. So they, you know, it kind of made sense for them to sort of say, call our bluff. Well, now we're in a different situation. Now they really are directly threatened, and we need them to、uh, step up. And that's going to involve a cultural change. But look, everybody's got to change. I mean, there's an old saying, you know, if you want things to stay the same, they're going to have to change. And that's a great example. So when I was there, I was saying you should triple the defense budget. From 1%. You know, that's something like what we spent. Now, the current, there's a huge loss with the former Prime Minister's assassination, Abe Shinzo, who's just a huge hero and, and just a giant figure that we all benefited from. So that's going to be a big hurt.、Uh, the current Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kishida, has kind of gestured in the direction of moving to 2%, but over like five years, maybe. So it's very uncertain. So I think this is too little and too long of a timeline. I know it's difficult for them. But you know, what would be more difficult is losing a catastrophic war. And that war could go very badly, not only for us, but for Japan. And you know, maybe we can go into that. But、uh, it's, it, it, the, 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 the situation is very dire. I do want to go into that and maybe start with your assessment of Chinese military exercises around Taiwan right now. Obviously, they mean something by it. Study Chinese culture, you know this.、Right. Study the CCP, you know this.、Right. But、uh, for our audience, Who, of course, can appreciate that but may not have the expertise、mm-hmm. to do. Give us your assessment of that. And then let's just keep going down this very pessimistic role,、uh, road of what that war might actually look、yeah. like. Yeah. So, I mean, stepping back, the Chinese for 25 years have been increasing their defense spending by about 6% to 10% every year. And they've been laser focused on a war over Taiwan because they were kind of humiliated when we sent carriers、uh, through the Taiwan Straits in the 1995 96 Taiwan Straits crisis. So, ever since then, They've been laser focused and they've only increased that under Xi Jinping. And they've gone from, you know, it used to be called a peasant army, quote unquote, you know, I mean, sort of think Viet Cong kind of thing, to now, I mean, something close to a pure military. If you, if you look at what our senior defense officials and officers are saying, they're calling it a near pure military. And they, the Chinese have actually exceeded us in areas of technology, potentially hypersonics, some other things that really matter. At the very least, we're not totally outclassing them. So, it's a really serious situation. And bear in mind, not only are they more focused, they've got a huge economy. 
they're right next to Taiwan and we're very far from it. And we've been distracted. You know, we're all over the place. So this is the problem. So what are they doing? And what I worry is they use the Pelosi visit to do some things they were planning to do anyway. Because if they're going to look, I think they're, if they're going to go after Taiwan, the only way they're going to get and this is kind of a lesson of Ukraine is you don't mess around. You leave nothing to chance. You go in big, dominant, and you just turn the lights off in the place. You go and you invade and you occupy. And then there's like no choice. You know, sorry, like I'm sh maybe you want your freedom, but sorry. You know, like how South Vietnam fell or, you know, in the name of your other uh, example. So if that's the case, the big problem they face is not only the American military, but warning. And this gets a little tacti tactical, but basically if you're going to mount an amphibious and air invasion across, think like a Normandy kind of situation, you've got to preserve surprise. So actually if we think of Normandy, there were huge deception operations, maybe, you know, the famous uh, British operation with the dead guy and the, and the plane, I think, in Spain. There was a lot of effort into that. So you, but you, what you really want to do if you're China, you want to shrink our warning time so that we can't act as effectively because if we're prepared, we're going to do a lot better than if we're not. And I think what they did is they started norming these things that would in other cases be kind of indicators. And so now we're going to just continue to get more and more used to what, you know, could be uh, impending, you know, warnings of an impending invasion. So... Obviously, we can hope and pray that doesn't happen. Before yeah. we, we switch parts of the world, we'll, we'll go to Europe next. Okay. I want to get your feedback. I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to ask you this. The role of India. Mm -hmm. I think geopolitically, there's tremendous potential there. Although, you know, those of us Americans who, who tend in our own work, as, as is the case for me, to spend more time on domestic policy, might minimize the internal difficulties that India has, as every country does. What's your assessment about India's potential, perhaps, if not to be a direct threat to China, at least to be a countervailing force? Very important, uh, despite a lot of the, the challenges that they face internally. In fact, talking to Indians often cures you of excessive optimism about India's uh, future. I mean, there have been prognostications for many decades that India is going to, you know, break out and, you know, it hasn't quite, it's grown significantly, but it faces enormous challenges, as, as we all do, as China does and so forth. But, but relatively speaking, China has dramatically outgrown India over the last couple of decades. Now, structurally speaking, our natural allies are the countries near to China that are strongest, right? The second tier powers. Think about it. China's big problem, if it wants to establish regional dominance, is to knock down the second tier powers, Right. And this actually, the third tier powers, to get a little obscure, uh, are their natural allies. That's why they're naturally friends with Pakistan, which has India as the threat, or Cambodia, which has Vietnam as the threat. So it's, it's kind of interesting. But, but India is very important. I think where we want to think about India is basically like a two-front problem for China. We're facing a two-front problem in Asia and Europe, and it's a huge problem for us. Well, we want a two-front problem for China. And by the way, India has the same interest, which is... They don't want all of the China's attention on them. So, so in this context, especially given the challenges that India has towards its growth, I think our basic interest right now is essentially uninhibited support for India. Like, they are critical. That doesn't mean we agree on everything. For instance, Russia, I don't think we have to agree. We both have the top priority being dealing with China. And, I mean, I think in that context, you know, the more they can grow, the more capable their military is, that's a benefit to us. So I think that's the, you know, that, that's more of a geopolitical perspective, but I think that's what ultimately serves American people's interests better. Well, 
we can uh, per- perhaps take some optimism from that, but, uh, but with a little bit of caution. So obviously, uh, you ask any American what's dominating foreign policy right now, maybe leading up to Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, they would have said the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And if, from a technical point of view, that's, that's not incorrect. But you and I have both lamented that there, there's a certain myopia among policymakers that uh, about Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in spite of the heroism of the Ukrainians, which we celebrate, that has prevented us from thinking about, as the United States, dealing with that threat while also dealing with the the much graver threat from the Chinese. How do you square that circle for us? That is to say, how do we... How would we have gone about helping Ukraine while not losing sight of the threat of the CCP? Well, I think that exactly what you said should have been the logic. And I wrote a piece, uh, co-authored a piece in the journal back in February, warning that we can't let Ukraine become a distraction from Taiwan. I fear that that's what's happened. And, you know, look, a couple a couple of things. First of all, Putin's invasion of uh, Ukraine is an abomination. It's an evil act. That's not a question. But we're not God. We can't solve all of the world's problems. we got to prioritize. And as we discussed, Asia is the priority theater. I mean, you know, in a way, I mean, I understand at a human level, you know, because of the traditional orientation towards Europe. But if you look at it in the way I think like business people look at it, I mean, it's not even close. Like Asia is upwards of 50, going to be upwards of 50 percent of global GDP. Europe is going to be is it right 20 percent about now. It's moving down to about 10 percent. So, like, you know, it's a much smaller area. Secondly, Russia is one tenth the GDP of China, one tenth. I mean, it's a serious threat. I don't take the Russians lightly at all. I, I think they're being discounted now. But it's, it, you know, it's just a, literally an order of magnitude. Thirdly, the European economy is talking about burden sharing. The European economies dwarf Russia in economic size. It's, it is a question of will. I mean, and some of them are, are stepping up, like the polls are going up to 5% defense spending. But like the, the, the basic, I, I don't, I, you know, my view is we should support the Ukrainians consistent with actually following through on our priority, which is holding the line at the first island chain, which is Japan, Taiwan, and Philippines, in the Pacific, which we're not doing. So there's a lot of rhetoric. You know, there's a lot of people saying, hey, we can do both at the same time. It's not happening. That's, that's false. And we need, to, we need to reckon with that. And that's an extremely d- d- dangerous situation. And the administration likes to say, oh, well, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, which drives me nuts. Because, like, is, is dealing with China walking or chewing gum? How about, like, sprinting a marathon or wrestling a dragon? That would give you the right order of magnitude kind of Those analogy. Those are correct metaphors. You know, that would be like, oh, wow, okay, that sounds a little crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's what dealing with China is. And instead, we're you know, everybody's giving high fives that we're, that we're like, you know, doing all this stuff in Europe and completely neglecting the situation. Or not completely, but essentially neglecting the situation in Asia. So this is a very worrisome point. And let me stress something, Kevin, because my argument sometimes, and probably yours too, sometimes gets distorted or even defamed, I would say, which is that I'm not calling for abandoning Europe. I'm, I'm, I'm calling for acting like it's truly the second priority, not the top priority. So if priority... First off, you make sure you're in good shape in the priority area, and we're not doing that. So that's I'm saying let's support the Ukrainians with the capabilities that are left over, in a sense, or we can make greater effort if we want. But you know, with what's available after we've made, and then we're not, and that's not what we're doing. And and th- thinking about Europe and everyone carrying their own burden, their share of the burden, were it not for the UK and Poland. We would, we in the West would be in really bad shape, right? Because you, you you just can't count on most of the rest of the countries to carry their share. And what really frustrates me, just as an American, but it also frustrates me as the president of Heritage, meaning you know representing a lot of Americans, is that they have so many European countries 
have the audacity to wag their finger and tell us as the United States we have to do more when they aren't pulling their own weight. While they're criticizing us on the Dobbs decision and so forth, which is, I mean, it really infuriates me. I mean, infuriates probably an understatement. It makes me extremely angry, and I think they are playing with fire, and they should be a lot more careful because that's that. I mean, I believe that NATO is a strategic organization that is in the interest of the United States. I believe that we must have a fundamental rebalancing within NATO to reflect strategic reality. By the way, after the Cold War, it's about 75% U.S. defense expenditure, something like 25% Europe. During the Cold War, we were better on burden sharing, including Democrats like LBJ, closer to 50-50. And we gave them a heck of a time about it. And that was the right policy because it was important. And that was the only way we were going to sustain American popular support. But I think, you know, the audacity of people calling for us to do more and not doing more themselves and then having, I mean, the even further audacity to, you know, criticize us about our internal decisions that have to do with Americans' own political decisions. I, I mean, it's just, it really <laughs> leaves a very bad taste in my mouth. That said, I, I, I do believe that we need to look at this fundamentally from a geopolitical and strategic point of view. But, you know, the administration's view at this point is essentially over-reassurance. Like, we need to reassure our allies to the degree that they don't completely panic. But they should be worried. Countries should be worried. I mean, the fact of the matter is, and I tell this to the Europeans all the time, we don't have a military, and, and Heritage has been making this point for years, we don't have a military that can fight two big wars at anything like near the same time. Okay, well, if Asia's the priority, that means if we get in the war in Asia, there's going to be vulnerability in Europe. There just is. And the administration's going around a lot, and the president's others saying to the Europeans, hey, we'll always be there, it's sacred. That's actually not being truthful, in my view, in the sense that if I were, you know, my vision of friendship is if I've got like a cancer diagnosis, God forbid, then my friends say, hey, Bridge, like you got to get in chemo, change your diet, do, do, do what you check multiple doctors. Not like, hey, hey, man, you're going to be fine. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. You know, don't even sweat it. Go to the beach. No, that's not being a good friend. And that's, I think, the way I mean, look at the Germans. The Germans should have been spending two percent. Ten years ago, almost. And they're still like way behind. And now there are real questions about whether they're going to follow through on what's called this famous Zeitenwende speech that Chancellor Schultz gave in February. Real questions about it. And by the way, this has nothing to do with the Nazi past because the Germans, the West Germans, when they were under direct threat, they spent a huge amount on defense. I mean, people who served in Germany during the Cold War know the West German military was a really serious organization. Yeah, that's used as a red herring. That's a total red herring. Inside German politics yeah. and also the European Union. Yeah, the same people won't meet with Lindsey Graham even, apparently. So anyway, I don't want to make, I don't want to like put salt in the wound, but like we all got to get, get with the reality. I, and as I said, I think the point here is we can go to rebounds. And by the way, this would, this would work. And this is, I actually think the French for all their, you know, we love French to have, yeah, we all have freshness. We all love to have the, 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 the scratchiness with our, our French. You know, I mean, they were our original allies, so we've got a historic uh, uh, connection. But actually, at least they're expressing an ambition to take a bigger role in Europe. So my view is we should actually work more with them. doesn't mean we have to agree. Macron, you know, intruded into the debate on Dobbs. I thought that was totally unacceptable or, you know, uh, you know like buzz off. But... That's the point. It's like we don't have to agree on that stuff. We have a shared interest. We should help them. And he seems to yeah. get it. I, I mean, think that, so. that, that frustration aside, yeah. it, it seems to be genuine. So, so we, yeah, the lesson is uh, go go work together on what you can. Yeah, exactly. Like work with countries where your interests align and you, you agree to disagree. I mean, even like we, all American states don't agree on every point of view. That's like the point of federalism, right? So, you know, this is this sort of shared values rhetoric, which, which, which is true as far as it goes. But I think it's been carried a bit too far, which is like, look, what, what our foreign policy about is the American people's interests. Obviously, we want to work with democracies. 
we, we are more sympathetic to democracies. But at the end of the day, our foreign policy is about protecting the American people's freedom, security, and, and prosperity. So let me ask you, uh, it is a direct follow-up question, although we've not mentioned this yet, so it may seem like it's far afield, but I know you understand the connections as, as our colleagues do. My friend and colleague Jim Carafano talks about this a lot. The, the climate change religion, mm -hmm. and by that I mean someone wants to believe in climate change, that's fine. I think that the, the, the jury's out there. But the point is, for the people and the, the elected officials in the European Union I've come to know, they see climate change as a religion, and therefore all of the policy programs that they want us as Americans to spend money on as a religion. It really does dictate geopolitics, but also in a way to connect back to the CCP in, in a way that's really benefited China. Explain that for our audience. Well, I mean, it's it's sort of uh, striking. I mean, the, the Chinese, I mean, one thing to say about climate change is like climate change, like pandemics, doesn't end geopolitics. In fact, it can accentuate. I mean, if you look back historically, I mean, not to get too obscure, but like the great Justinian plague of the sixth century, you know, was going to reestablish re the Roman Empire. And this huge plague, I mean, you're a historian, descended. And it totally it didn't end geopolitics. It actually intensified them. You know, so so this is this is something that we need to uh, and the change of the climate. I think you know, I mean, the early Middle Ages or late Middle Ages and so forth. Politics happens in that context, so that doesn't like solve geopolitics. Secondly, the Chinese clearly don't put climate above geopolitics. It was hilarious in a way because one of the things they canceled after Pelosi's visit was like the climate change discussion. So in case you were wondering whether they would segregate climate change cooperation from uh, 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 you know, geopolitics. Uh, uh, nope. And, and the other thing is like, you know, so I mean, kind of on the point about geopolitics is like, well, okay, so climate change, if you think it is happening, then the Chinese may think that too, and they're going to optimize their position in the future. So they're going to have their best economic, you know, differential economic growth. I mean, I personally, I mean, I'm with you on in general on policy implications. I mean, I think we're better off continuing to grow our economy, advance technology, not shut down our societies. I mean. Look at what's happening in Europe. I mean, this is nuts, right? I mean, why are they not building nuclear power plants? I mean, I guess the Germans have kind of, I think they're building coal, coal powered power plants. So it's like, you the know, irony of which is, I mean, it's just it's like, expressive. it's just incredible. So, I mean, whatever one's view on climate change, we still got to have, we just, at, at the end of the day, it's like the cops in the, in the, in the neighborhood. It's, we got to think about our geopolitical position. So let's talk about two continents we've not covered and, and not to give them short shrift by any stretch. But South America and Africa are, are vital components, obviously, of the world. But in this conversation, particularly as they relate to the, the ascendancy of the CCP, I mean, as, as we talk to at Heritage elected officials from countries of both of those continents, I mean, routinely bridge, they talk about how difficult it is to navigate two things. The first is just the, the preponderance of Chinese power. Uh, geopolitically, economically, investments in their country. But secondly, what they call the absenteeism of real American presence. And it's interesting to me. Yeah. It, no, it's interesting. And I think, you know, in a way, just like these, what I would call secondary or even tertiary theaters, in a way, they're actually going to require more creative and sort of 
energetic American diplomacy and policy. Because if you think, as I do, like that, that Asia is the kind of primary theater, there's almost like a geometric quality to it. So it's like China's this huge thing. It's pretty clear who's on our side and who's not. It's the one, you know, they, they don't like the Japanese. It's pretty obvious. They've been, they killed Indian soldiers. So like those are our buddies, you know, even the Vietnamese, like um, you and I hate communism, but like, you know, they're, <laughs> they got from the last war the Chinese fought was against the Vietnamese. So like we're, they're hopefully going to kind of line up on our side. So that's, it's less like sort of, it, there's, there's less room for maneuver in a way. So we, it's more about just like getting the thing done, you know, building up our strength, holding the line. The farther these countries are from China, the more room they have. And so the more, even though we, but we have less capital put there, you know, military, money. So we're going to have to be more clever about it. My, my, my good friend, my partner, Wes Mitchell, is, I think, very articulate on this point about how do we think about Even Europe is the secondary theater, I would say. So I think that's how, you know, I, I actually don't want to just say, like, we ignore these other theaters. To the contrary, we have to think about them, but we have to think about them in a way that's resource constrained. You know, it's that's the that's the critical thing. So, I mean, in, in Latin America, I mean, I think sometimes Americans exaggerate the natural alignment of particularly South America, the United States. I mean, if you look historically, they were often oriented more towards Europe. And if you look at the trading relationships, they're kind of naturally linked with China because they're natural resource exporters. And China needs that. And China, I guess, passes them back, you know, electronics or whatever. So in a, I think if you look at a map, we're already not the first trading partner with most countries in Latin America. I think, you know, obviously Mexico is an exception and so forth. But but that's a real competition for influence. I think we have natural natural advantages in a lot of ways. You know, the I mean, of course, there's also resentment in Latin America about the heavy hand over historically of the United States. But I mean, one thing we have going for us is just the behavior of the CCP. And Xi Jinping in particular. One thing I was a little, I haven't spent too much time in China, but I, you know, been in and out and kind of watched them is in a way they're a little like us in this one particular way, which is like, you know, you fly from, from Maine to California or Minnesota, Texas, and it's all the same country, right? So like the same TV stations, you're kind of like, it's like 330 million people talking to each other or themselves. So like it's, People say, oh, Americans don't have passports. Well, it's like it's a huge country. Like you could visit every state and it could take you years, you know. Similarly in China, it's like 1.4 billion people. So like if you think about what is it, you know, WeChat or whatever they've got, TikTok. There's a, they talk to themselves, but it has a tendency to make them less sensitive on the outside in addition to being Marxist-Leninist. So like, you know, they said on national television in France the other day that they're going to re-educate people in Taiwan. And it's like, well... You know, if they're going to re-educate and have like a total like panopticon, they, they see everything you do online in their own country uh, when they control the entire, you know, social media of the world. Uh, how do you expect they're going to treat like Peruvians, you know, or Chileans? Not better. I think we can assume that. So that's like we got that going for us. I think we got to we got and that's where like the values are very important that we stand for republicanism and self, you know, sovereignty and self-determination, independence. And that's a natural alignment. I mean, in the Middle East, I was disappointed by, I mean, I think the president should have been working, the administration should have been working with MBS from the beginning. Again, not because he's like a nice guy about the Khashoggi thing, but because what's the point of our foreign policy? It's to serve the American people's interests. Like, you're going to have to deal with people you don't agree with on a lot of things. I don't want to live under Islamic theocracy either. But okay, I mean, that's part of the deal. So, but I one thing I, that worried me, and partially because I think they rebuffed and. Mohammed bin Salman for some time. He had to say all, the president had to say all these things, you know, we're always going to be in the Middle East. That's dangerous because that's like this maw 
you know, of, of central command and we have to solve all the Middle East problems and that hasn't worked out well. And it's also not necessary. The Middle East is going to be a problem area, but I think what we should be doing is backing our Israeli, you know, close friends as well as the Gulf states in standing up to Iran and bolstering them while we focus on, on, uh, on Asia. Well, thanks for that. I mean, that was a tour de force of a response as you covered the rest of the world in just a few minutes. And, and I would sit here and talk to you about the world for hours, but you're a busy guy. So we'll just have to have you on regularly to give us updates. <laughs> that would be a privilege. And, and I want to be sure that people are aware, because I, I forgot to mention it earlier, you have a wonderful, relatively recent book that, that I have read. Thank you very much. Uh, sitting on my desk at home is evidence of, of having been read a couple of times, so not here on the set. But tell us about that book and also where they can follow your work. because And I really do mean this, not in any kind of pandering way. It really is superb. I want to be sure our audience knows. Well, I'm honored. I, I, the, the sentiments are very mutual, so I appreciate that. Uh, the book is called The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict came out last year, last September. The paperback edition is coming out uh, again, September 2022. And basically what it is is an attempt to kind of like, from first principles, to determine what our defense strategy should be. And I, I start out with these geopolitics things, you know, this and, and the basic American issue. I try to work it out logically and, 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 and in an accessible way. One of the things I really uh, was pleased about the book was that it's not just being read by kind of defense wonks and beltway people. It's actually gotten out, and I did a radio tour, uh, you know, that, that, you know, Americans who may work in a totally different field uh, and, and, and actually abroad as well are engaging with the arguments. It's not a technical book. It's not necessarily always a, a light read, maybe, you know, but, for that. Okay. but it's but it's accessible. And that's sort of the, the thing, because, look, I mean, these are issues of life and death for us all. And I take them very, very gravely in terms of following me. Um, uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Elbridge Colby. Uh, uh, for its for all its faults, I think it, I think Twitter has some it still has some benefits. The ability to get directly out to people without having to go through gatekeepers, and that's been that's been good. And then uh, my my institute is called the uh, which I uh, uh, co lead with my my partner Wes Mitchell uh, is called the Marathon Initiative. And you can find us on on, on the internet. Rich Colby, thanks for that. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. We will be back again with an equally entertaining, well, maybe equally entertaining guest as Bridge Colby was. Take care in the meantime. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.